Today's scripture reading is from Esther, chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I have called to go. I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back the answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. It's a pretty well-known story. I know most of you who have children particularly have read it in one form or another to your kids. Uh, Some of you who are Bible scholars have read through the book and noted interesting uh, particulars. But I bring up the story of Esther because of the summer that I've had and experiences of late and reflections on those. I had the privilege of going with our Pathfinder group to Oshkosh, which is in Wisconsin. It's the North American Division Camporee, which means that people from North America and anywhere else who want to be a part of a North American Camporee gather in one place and share common meetings And lots and lots of great things you'll hear much more about next week as Pathfinders share their recollections and talk about what they learned and experiences as we sing for you the theme song and so forth. But the theme of this particular campery was courage to stand. I know you can't see it, but here is a triangle patch with a picture of Queen Esther on it. And it says, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, 2009, International Camboree, Courage to Stand, right there. And so this was given to Pathfinders who attended this event, and they can put it on their sash. Those of you who've been in Pathfinders know exactly what I'm talking about. I was intrigued with the theme, Courage to Stand, because uh, there was a lot of emphasis in some ways placed upon that in my youth. If you remember the days of old, uh, and and I know many of you have become Adventists as teenagers or adults or come from uh, other, other places where you may not share these collective memories, so bear with me. We had a thing back in the day called Junior Missionary Volunteer, and that's what JMV stood for. And then if you graduated from that, you could become simply an MV which is a missionary volunteer. 
There were youth's organizations and children's organizations, temperance movements. When I was in third grade, I signed a temperance pledge, a temperance pledge card. How many of you remember those days? Yeah, a few. The temperance pledge was related to all of these other things. It was part of what it meant to be one who would stand for, for belief and faith. Pathfinders was an organization founded because when you have a Sabbath, a Shabbat, that is a biblical Shabbat that goes from Friday night sundown to Sabbath sundown, the structures of other world are difficult to fit into. Whether they be athletic or academic, whether they be social or business. And so rather than joining Boy Scouts, which would take people out of church and into activities that were secular on Sabbath, the church envisioned an organization called Pathfinders, namely a couple of individuals did, that would provide education and training and interest and exposure for our young people in a variety of crafts and arts, learning and disciplines. And so this, this has evolved through the years. There were 35,000 people camped in a one square mile area. And it was one of the best experiences of my ministry and of my life. I really felt there at the end of uh, my time that it had been like a vacation even though the conditions were what they were and there were things to do that were required and we had responsibilities. It, it was so much fun. But in thinking about the, the theme of this and who they chose, every night they had a feature on the life of Esther. And they told her story through five nights in drama, and it was so well done, so engaging. It was a musical, actually. Full production, stage and props and lighting and, and beautiful costumes. In fact, it was so professionally done that it was pre-recorded and lip-synced so that you wouldn't get any of these little pops and scratches and little bumps and things in the recording coming through these huge racks of speakers that it would take to project sound to 35,000 people in a field outdoors. And they did a wonderful job. And the story was well written, this adaptation, because we have to take a story that could be rated R or beyond and turn it into a, a PG-11 I know there's no such thing, right? I'm really thinking somewhere between G and PG-13. And they did a great job. Well, enough about that. You'll hear more next week. But the great thing about the theme is that it's a seed planted in your head. And as I said, I started reflecting more on what this meant and how it tied to my past. And it wasn't just junior missionary volunteer organizations or missionary volunteer organizations or pathfinders or temperance or anything else that spoke to me alone. It was all of that combined with a strong apocalyptic e emphasis. I was sure in 1973 with gas lines around the corner and gas prices approaching 
50 cents a gallon that I was not going to have the privilege of growing up and getting married and having children and all the normal things. I was persuaded that the crisis, not a crisis, the final crisis was imminent. Jesus was really going to come soon and it wasn't going to be pretty. You see, because I was an Adventist, remember now, I'm nine in my head thinking this, because I'm an Adventist, I was going to be possibly imprisoned. Well, maybe that's okay. But tortured, and that's not okay. And maybe even put to death, and that's really not okay. I was going to have to stand for my faith. And depending on the adult I listened to, I wouldn't even have the comforter with me. I wouldn't even have the Spirit of God there to lead or or guide or strengthen me. I would have to have done this of my own power and will and strength. It was a horrible thought. I remember nine years old and waking up in a cold sweat because I had dreamed Jesus had come again. I'd fallen down the laundry chute into a laundry basket and I was stuck in there while the the roof and the, all of my house just sort of parted and I could see this cloud coming. Let me ask you a question. Should the day of his coming be a day of dread? I can't hear you. Are you sure about that? Why should it not be a day of dread? Because my redemption draws nigh. But you see... In those days, I was thinking crisis. In those days, I was thinking that I was going to have to be perfect. And while I was terrific at nine, there's just no debating it, uh, I was not quite perfect. Not quite. So this courage to stand thing evoked for me a whole history, a whole bit of, of baggage. There were people like Esther and Daniel and Joseph, people like John the Baptist and Jesus, who had had to have the courage to stand. They'd had to go through something really crummy. And their big day or days was what that was about. Today's text at the end there has a line in it that I think is worth repeating. So if you have your Bible open to Esther 4, or if you can reproject the last, last slide from that, last, uh, second to last slide, this is what is said. Uh, actually, I want verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. This is where courage meets destiny. This is where courage collides with the circumstances of the moment. Now you know the setup. Let me recap for those of you who may not be familiar with this story. We're talking about the Assyrian Empire. It was the largest empire of its day. The Assyrians were very skilled in military conquest brutal and very well organized. The story is set in the capital city of Susa. 
the king Xerxes has just been engaged in wars in Greece and has been rebuffed by the Spartans. Historically, it's a bit of time of turmoil for him. And because of his losses militarily, he's in a precarious position. And his queen refuses to make an appearance before he and his drunken friends one night in court. Well, we can't have this, can we? So she is dismissed, and the queen is no longer, and it is recommended to the king by his advisors that he hold a beauty contest. Now I'm giving you the quick and dirty here, the very simple version, almost the uh, Bible story edition here, but just a recap. In this particular uh, contest, the young maidens from the kingdom, and we're probably looking at uh, 14, 15 on through early 20s, were to be gathered. They would be sorted. I'm not thinking that every young woman in the kingdom between these ages would eventually end up in the king's palace. But there would be a process in which a large number of women would be gathered and groomed. There were six years of treatments with oils and six years of, I mean, six months, six months of treatments with oils, six months of treatments with lotions. And at the end of the year, including training and manners and, and expectations of the court and so forth and so on, uh, it would be a woman's time to go before the king. And she would be moved thereafter into the house of concubines. Esther was such a girl. Known in the Hebrew as Hadessa, she was an orphan, but a beautiful girl, according to Scripture. It states so that she was physically and in terms of personality a beautiful woman. Her uncle Mordecai worked for King Xerxes, being one who stood at the gate of the palace. And there's an interplay here you have to read because the story is too long to really tell. But it's a wonderful interplay. Because he takes her as her, his daughter and has raised her and it comes to a key point in time when this decree has gone out that the young women are to appear and he tells her that she has to go. But that he'll be at the palace gate. She has to go, but she's never to reveal that she's a Jew. She is to keep her identity a secret. And he makes her swear to it. Well, she goes. She goes and she finds favor immediately with those preparing her to see the king. There are two eunuchs who care for these women, one before and one after. And she's not yet through the time of preparation when it's her time to be called. It's a very scary time. But she listens to the court. She does what they tell her to do. And in the end of the day, she finds favor in the king's eyes. Xerxes falls 
for Esther and names her queen. But the law of the Medes and Persians, so to speak, was unchangeable and still applied. And queens were still women in relationship to their male counterparts, the king, the male. And she did not have the right to appear to him anytime she wanted. She had the right to appear to him when summoned. And so the context of our passage today is that a decree has gone forth through a plot in the court to kill the Jews, to eradicate them from the kingdom. They should have gone back to Israel, perhaps, when they were allowed to do so by Cyrus the Great, but they hadn't. They had stayed. This was their home, and there were many of them still there. Mordecai goes to Esther and he says some interesting things I want to pick up on just really uh, briefly here this morning. Do not think, verse, this is verse 12 and 13. Esther's words were reported to Mordecai and he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. That's an incredible passage. Because it's very different in terms of how it contextualizes the courage to stand. You see, what Mordecai does is he does encourage his adopted daughter, his niece probably, to obey the order of the kingdom. He stands at the gate as he always does. He does his part faithfully and he regrets her having to go, but he participates. He's taught her about God. He's taught her about who she is. He's taught her about what it means to be a Jew. But he's sworn her to secrecy. And he's asking her now to do something through back channels in the palace that is very dangerous and very difficult. He's asking her to go to the king and get this thing stopped. He's asking her to risk her life for her people. He's asking her to break the law. The law that says you cannot appear before the king unsummoned. It's a tense time. It's a tough time. And he says, look, if deliverance doesn't come from you, it's going to come from someone else. But you and your family will perish. What that tells me is rich and full. First of all, God does not need me alone. If I do not stand at the moment of my calling, he will call someone else to stand. What is sure in the story here is the story of God's deliverance. 
What preaches in this story is not the interest and the intrigue of the palace, not the politics of the day, those, these, though, though these things are fascinating. What preaches is that God will deliver his people. That is what courage to stand is all about. It isn't about me in isolation somewhere, drawing a line in the sand sand and standing for that line. It isn't about dogma per se, although we would stand for what we believe. I'm getting to that in just a minute. The courage to stand is a willingness to participate in the larger picture of the salvation of God's people. And Esther isn't sure. And Mordecai says, listen to me. If you fail, don't think that you're going to make it. Don't think you'll survive this. God will deliver his people. But you and your father's house may perish. She knows he's right. That line, who knows but that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this or come to be a part of the royal household for such a time as this, is next. She knows he's right. So she agrees to go before the king. She orders her handmaidens to fast and pray with her for three days. She tells Mordecai to get the word out to the kingdom and she agrees to go. And at the end of three days, she freshens up, she puts on her best, and she goes before the king. Now the guards are ready, spears and swords drawn. Her head is ready for removal. She has had to exhibit great courage. And like a true queen, as the grace of the scepter is extended her and the swords go down and the the spears are put back in place, as the guards go back to attention, Like a true queen, she invites her husband to dinner, to a banquet, and then to another, and then she reveals the plot against the people of the Jews. And while that's shocking to the king, he's really shocked when she reveals at last that she herself is a Jew. And how can she let her people perish? Well, you know the end of the story. The king hangs the one who plots against him, and he orders the Jews to take up arms in their defense against their enemies. Now, the part that doesn't make any of the children's storybooks happens after that, and you realize that vengeance is taken by the Jews on their enemies. Hundreds of people perish. And the Jews become greatly feared in the land because they are protected under this law and have the right to take vengeance on their enemies. It's amazing reversal. There's a song we sing sometimes, You Have Turned My Morning Into Dancing. Have you heard that song? You've Turned My Sorrows Into Joy. Anybody heard this? Oh, it's a contemporary song. I'll, I'll give it a quick, you have turned my, my, my morning into dancing, you have turned my sorrows into joy. It's just part of a verse, a bridge of a contemporary piece. But that 
phrase, those two phrases, that's Esther. The people of God delivered go from mourning to dancing, from sorrow to joy. They've gone from being the oppressed and the victims and the fearful ones to being the ones who can stand. God had delivered his people. And the holiday of Purim is celebrated to this day. That is the holiday instituted because of what Esther did. So I want to reframe courage to stand. You see, courage to stand isn't just this isolated act of self-sacrificing bravado. It isn't martyrdom at the end of days. It isn't you somehow summoning the courage to do the big thing in the big moment. The courage to stand is a lifetime of action. And as my title implies, it really begins with connection. I don't need to tell you what that means, I hope. It means that we are connected to a living, vital, and saving God whose coming we look forward to, not fear. It means we are connected to a family. A family that takes us in when we are orphaned. It means that we're part of a family that looks out for our well-being and through secret channels continues to communicate with us in the isolation of this terrible place that we've ended up. It means that we're part of a larger family, a people, a people of God, a chosen people. And that he, the Lord God, will save. So it's about connections. We have no place to stand without our connectedness to God and life and family and extended family. In other words, one another. And it takes conviction. Before I close today, I want to ask you, what are you convicted about? I tell you what, simplify it if you can in your life because too much conviction is a really heavy thing to carry. A great deal of conviction about a great many things is a burden greater than most of us can bear. And if you had my upbringing, you have a hint at what I'm talking about. Yes? Pick a few things. Are they worth living for? And if they're worth living for, are they worth dying for? When you find your convictions, you'll find the courage to stand. So my lesson from Esther today, maybe a bit convoluted, but I'll try to make it clear. The story as we know it and the story it is 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 the difference between rated G and rated R. With language, violence, nudity, etc. The difference between the expectation that somehow Esther carries this thing by herself and the realization that God has chosen her and placed her and is using her uniquely despite difficult circumstances, much like Daniel, much like Joseph, much like others, 
but that because of her connections and because of her convictions, she's able and willing to stand. The courage to stand is about you and I finding those connections, finding those convictions, and taking our stand every day. In a world in which God is portrayed negatively, in a world in which Jesus and his followers are becoming a joke, in a world in which salvation begs the question from what? Though it's increasingly obvious. In a world in which what used to make sense no longer makes sense. In a world of increasing fragmentation and lack of focus and an increase in media in a world in which opinion counts as fact, we need to find where we're going to stand. May God help us to that end. Oh God who saves his people, we thank you for your grace, for your call, and for putting in places where we might stand. Give us the courage, the grace, the connections, to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.